And good morning here from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Now, I want you to imagine our little blue planet hanging in space. It was a time when it seemed so vast and so infinite compared to a tiny, puny human. But now we've released, leashed, unleashed vast forces that are shaping the planet in ways we never, never could have imagined. And to discuss these things, we have two guests in the studio today, Professor Mark Howden, who is the director of the ANU Climate Centre. Good morning, Mark. Morning. And uh, Dr. Liz Allen, who is a demographer. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. And Liz, you've just been selected for the ABC researcher, the residency program. Indeed, very exciting. Also quite scary, all in equal measure, I think. (laughs) Now, climate, the climate situation, oh, a couple of days ago here in Canberra, 17 degrees and the middle of winter. And I'm looking also at the news reports from a couple of days ago from the Canberra Times heat waves across the northern hemisphere in North America. Massive and intense heat dome has consumed the eastern two thirds of the United States, Europe. Excessive heat torched the British Isles last week, Eurasia and the Middle East. Oh, here's one. The Middle East, Mark, I don't think I can pronounce the name of this place, but in the Gulf of Persia, uh, a minimum temperature for 24 hours was 42.6 degrees. What's going on with our climate? <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think in terms of that minimum temperature, that was the record um, nighttime temperature ever um, recorded, and so that was, uh, you know, an extraordinary event in its own right. Um, but what's happening there is, is what, in a sense, we'd expect is that what we've done is we've added added blankets to the the uh, Earth system. So normally we get radiation that comes in from the sun that warms up the Earth that re-radiates back out to space, and and things like water vapor in the atmosphere or clouds actually act as blankets, um, and they keep some of that heat in. But so do greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and the more of these we add to our atmosphere, it's effectively it's like adding more blankets. It keeps the Earth warmer than it would otherwise be, and then that's why we see. Um, some of these events, you know, the average temperature is rising, um, but that's also influencing other factors such as the circumpolar systems, which is why we're getting this heat dome uh, over North, uh, North America and Europe. And, and because the Earth is a, essentially a balanced system, if you're really hot in one place, it probably means you're a, a bit cooler um, than normally in other places. But in summer in the Northern Hemisphere, that's probably not a problem, but we're seeing this really extended heat uh, system um, causing problems right across there. Well, the, these sort of news reports are quite tricky for climate scientists, aren't they? Because there's a distinction between weather and climate. How do we cope with that? Oh, I mean, a colleague of mine talks about um, uh, climate being the sort of uh, conditions you expect and, and weather being what you actually get. And, and it's the, the difference between the expectations, you know, the long-term probability and the immediate effects of weather systems like high pressures and cold fronts and things like that. Now, a lot of your research is on the impacts of climate change on agriculture. And simplistically, you could say, oh, well, so the temperature's one, is it one, what are we at the moment now, 1.1? Yeah, about one degree, a bit above above the long-term average, yeah. Uh, But the effects, it's not just an opportunity to spend more days at the beach, 
it, it's a much bigger impact, isn't it? Absolutely. So pretty much everything on Earth is impacted by uh, the the temperature. So whether it's biology, so our own responses, whether we put on the heating or turn on the air conditioning, um, or animals um, in in agriculture, or whether it's crops in agriculture, or water resources, or all sorts of different things are all affected by temperature, and. And in the case of agriculture, um, you know, if you've got uh, animals which are under heat stress, is that um, they will stop eating and they won't eat as much so to manage their temperature. Um, under extreme heat stress, they will do things like stop reproducing. Um, they'll become sick um, and in, in really extreme conditions, they'll die. Um, similarly with crops is that uh, essentially crops have a little thermal clock inside them that ticks and it ticks faster when it's hotter. So if you have higher temperatures, it actually means um, the crops are actually, that the time between when they germinate and when they uh, get harvested actually shrinks. And, and that actually limits the amount of time that they can accumulate biomass, actually accumulate yield, and that, that has an impact. So, so higher temperatures um, impact directly on crop uh, growth patterns through the biology, but also impacts through water use. So water um, plants become less water efficient at higher temperatures uh, and extreme events that can desiccate crops. Well, you, so you used the term earlier system and what we're seeing is you start meddling with the levers of the system and it, and it has all sorts of unpredictable effects. We might come back to the, we will come back to the question of productivity and agriculture at a moment but on the way you mentioned the effect of heat on humans or on animals, biology and at least you've done some research on disasters and well and in the news in fact there are cases of heat stress people dying unnaturally from excessive heat what's your background in this so certainly we see um, uh, when we look at adverse uh, climate events or take for example a sustained period of time where the night time and the daytime temperature are quite high. Well, 42 degrees. Well that's extraordinary isn't it and, and, the, and um, uh, the, the people living in those areas are not used to those sorts of situations. Um, it, it poses serious risks particularly to vulnerable people and when I talk vulnerable people I'm talking about elderly people with compromised health chronic diseases and things like that um, and we know these things are increasing among the population so the the population that um, are vulnerable or at risk from these adverse um, climate or, or um, uh, weather events uh, are increasing and indeed um, you know the, look around Canberra for example Canberra doesn't have air conditioning in, in many homes yeah. and it might be that um, uh, as we become more um, exposed to these, these, these weather or climate events that um, people in Canberra could, could be at serious risk where they don't have um, uh, air conditioning to be able to kind of calm down of a night and, 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 and get some sort of respite from the heat. Globally, different populations will be affected in different ways by climate change. Indeed, indeed. And, um, you know, we're already seeing, if we just take a very um, Australia-centric view of things, um, we already know that there are uh, areas uh, along the coast that are impacted by, by increasing sea levels. Um, and if we look at the distribution of our population in Australia, high concentration are along the coast. But then if we look at populations um, as they kind of uh, are distributed away from the city centres, 
there are issues of, of climate stress and weather stress that these areas, particularly about getting access to water, will increasingly be exposed to. Right, and some of the effects, Mark, on the Australian climate in the Australian context, southwestern Australia, for example, I understand is heavily affected, rainfall changes... Yes, yeah, so, so rainfall drops in Western Australia are already um, cut in quite significantly. So um, dam levels are way down from what they used to be. And so um, they've had to find new sources of water, so desal and groundwater. And so um, that's already impacting. And um, But thinking globally and just following what Liz um, talked about, is that there was a study come out last year which looked at the frequency of what was they called deadly heat stress events. And their study showed that about um, a third of people currently experience deadly heat stress on about 20 days per year. And at current greenhouse gas emission rates, by the end of the century, three quarters of the global population will experience that level of three, heat stress. Just three, three quarters. quarters. Yeah. And I'm hearing predictions that Sydney could be seeing temperatures as high as, is it 50, 40? Oh, it, it, could well happen. I mean, so Western Sydney already is a hot spot for high temperatures, and 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 those could could creep up as well. Uh, but but that's uh, um, again what you'd expect with average temperatures going up. Um, but particularly in places like Northern Australia, it actually means that every day becomes a heat stress day, and and so. Uh, working outside during the heat of the day is actually problematic. Um, you know, productivity goes down, um, sort of health issues start to arise. Um, people need more air conditioning and that increases the energy demand. Um, that increases our greenhouse gas emissions and, and so the cycle continues. So, um, so we do have to be very aware of the systemic effects of these changes. They're not, they're not minor. You can't put a little box around them. They, they you know, spread right across our society. And if I could just pick up on this idea of um, water security, you know, there's been a lot of talk, um, particularly in the last decade, about moving the population of Australia north, go to where the water is, to the where, where the rainfall occurs, right? Yeah. Um, and um, this investment in northern northern Australia. Now, I'll, I'll kind of I'll, I'll use an example that um, um, I have. While while there's a lot of um, uh, the outlook doesn't look so good in, in a lot of um, domains if we're talking about population and we're talking about climate. But if we use an example of the way that um, uh, that we do things and the way that we kind of ha build infrastructure around um, our population, take water, for example, and we'll talk about the, the built environment. If we look at the water um, security in uh, New South Wales, in the Sydney area, um, uh, it, it, the, it looked pretty grim in terms of the water catchment, but, it, but um, some improvements to the, the water catchment and, and the way that the water was held um, showed that, in fact, the, water, the, the, the amount of water that was being held um, over time increased despite the fact that rainfall kind of wasn't. And that's because the, the infrastructure around that water um, was, improved was better maintained, water, in fact. more efficient with our water and so on. Yeah. That's right. And, and then if we think about the built environment, particularly in, in Western Sydney, we know that there are climate hotspots 
um, and there are better ways to be building. There are better ways to um, to be connecting areas via transportation, um, um, both from an environmental um, perspective, but also from a, an individual well-being perspective. Well, this this you mentioned the move of Australian population to the north. I, I've been writing about the Ord River scheme as part of my book. There, I mentioned. <laughs> But uh, we have sunk something like $1.5 billion into that region and just transplanting agriculture to the Kimberley isn't that simple. And you can't pick up Sydney, go all the streets, the roads, the wires and all the people and everything and just sort of dump them in the north. Uh, it isn't, isn't that easy. So just get back to the, your earlier point, uh, Mark, about agriculture and the effect on plants. Are you saying that the nutrition of plants is affected because they have a shorter growing period? But there's also people who say, well, we have more carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is a fertilizer. It's good for the plants. The plants grow faster. What is, what's that effect? Oh, we've known for well over 100 years that if you put carbon dioxide in an atmosphere, uh, sort of plants do grow better. They become more water efficient, they become more nitrogen efficient and more sunlight efficient. And uh, so, um, so for every unit of water or sunlight or nitrogen, you can actually grow more. And, and that's because of basic physiology. Some of that physiology was actually undertaken uh, at ANU, the, the studies that sort of um, identified some of the, the mechanisms behind that. Um, but you have to look at the, the pluses of higher carbon dioxide and the minuses of climate change. And in some places, you're getting climate change actually improving uh, agricultural production, and, uh, and in some places, it's pushing it down. And, and so that's a, a combination of the, the two things working together. Together. And if um, you look at Australia uh, already, um, Australian agriculture is being pulled back uh, by climate change. So we're, we're well behind in terms of productivity um, where we would be in the absence of climate change. So, so we've got technological change, we've got improved varieties, we've got improved management, um, but uh, climate change is sort of pulling us back from the growth rates we'd otherwise have. Well, a lot, a lot of that would be the effect on the rainfall patterns and in, across the Murray-Darling Basin, which is the great food bowl of Australia. What's, what's happening there? Uh, it's, it's a combination of, of rainfall, but also high temperatures and high vapour pressure deficits and also extreme events. And so obviously if your crop gets knocked down um, by a storm, you know, you, you lose a significant part of that. So um, so studies, for example, by ABARES here in Canberra have, have shown that the aggregate impact of all of those things is negative right across um, the main agricultural zones in Australia from the southeast to the southwest and up oh. to Queensland. So it's not just the Murray-Darling. But of course in the Murray-Darling Basin there's um, uh, during the Millennium Drought we had really significant uh, issues in terms of water flows and, uh, and so um, very little uh, water was available for industries such as the rice industry uh, but just as Liz said there's been improvements in efficiencies uh, in uh, water systems in relation to cities there's also been improvements in efficiencies in relation to agriculture and part of that's about having um, market 
systems where, where you have tradable water rights and so the, the water can be used in the highest value um, use rather than being used um, across the board. Well, we, we have efficiency in water and agriculture, of course, and efficiency in energy. Our guest today on Fuzzy Logic, Professor Mark Howden, who's the director of the ANU Climate Institute, and Dr Liz Allen, a demographer. We might break to a quick song break here and this one kind of seems appropriate uh, and I know our guests will relate to why I've chosen this particular song here on Fuzzy Logic I remember that song. In fact, I recorded that off an old vinyl 45, <laughs> 45 uh, record player, the Banana Rama. Mark Howden, you uh, correctly identified the people who wrote that song <laughs> here on Fuzzy <laughs> Lodge. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid it dates us both a little bit. Uh, I can remember bopping around the lounge room to that song. Uh, <laughs> in fact, we're doing the dance moves <laughs> as we all, uh, and as we should, of course. Uh, we're talking climate, we're talking population, we're talking people, demographics, what's happening to our planets, uh, with Professor Mark Howden and Dr. Liz Adden, Allen. Now, Mark, just quickly before we move on to population and demographics a bit more, why did I choose that particular song? Oh, it's a, I guess Venus is a very flexible metaphor for many things, but um, but in in terms of climatology, there's green, uh, Venus has really high concentration of greenhouse gases in its atmosphere, and that's why it's really hot. So it's it's a massive greenhouse. Do you know that I have a bit of audio from a movie? I think it was 1978 or thereabouts called Soylent Green. Mm. Do you remember the movie? Mm. Yeah, Mark is nodding, Liz is shaking her head. Uh, it was kind of a bleak dystopian type of uh, movie which starring Charlton Heston and Soylent Green was people. They were feeding people to people. Mm. Uh, well, there you go. There's a population related thing because <laughs> th they were starving. But in that movie, they use the term greenhouse effect, the greenhouse effect. And that goes 1978. Now, the idea goes back a lot further than that, though, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, a long time. So, so in fact, back to about the 1840s, uh, where a French uh, chemist actually figured out that um, greenhouse uh, gases were actually keeping Earth warm. And then there was a calculation in 1895 which uh, showed that if we kept on emitting greenhouse gases, we'd increase uh, temperature on Earth by about 4 degrees, uh, was the number that he, um, this Swedish chemist came up with. Um, and so, so we've actually known the basics of this issue for a long, long time. It's 4 degrees. Now, is that possible now? Abs absolutely. So, so the current sort of um, Paris Agreement uh, components, that's the sort of nationally determined contributions is what it's called, uh, will lead to something in the range of three degrees if everyone complies with that and if the US doesn't increase its greenhouse ga gas emissions. Um, but there's a real issue with compliance and so whether people will actually stick to um, their Paris Agreement reductions in emissions. Well, and, and in that case, it will head up towards four degrees or maybe higher. Three, well, even over two degrees, my understanding is once you start flicking the switch on, the climate system 
that it's getting a bit hairy, a bit unpredictable. What what would a three degree or four degree world look like? Oh, it's pretty hard to to sort of figure that one out. Um, uh, so we, we have a very good reason to believe that extreme events would increase both in their strength and their frequency. Uh, so storms uh, would increase in their strength, cyclones would be stronger and they would move further south in the southern hemisphere, further north in the northern hemisphere. Uh, changes in rainfall patterns, so probably accelerating and um, uh, emphasising the sorts of uh, changes we've already seen. So in this part of the world, further reductions in rainfall uh, and increases in sea level. And so sea level's already accelerating, so it's going up faster and faster. And we're getting feedback loops and so on. Indeed, yeah. that's right. And, and, this, and the scale of those changes is quite scary. So around the coasts of Australia, if you think of the sea, a flood event that used to only occur one in 100 years, uh, at the end of this century, under the sort of current uh, emission scenarios we're on, um, that will occur between 10,000-fold or 100,000-fold more frequently. And so what used to be a one-in-a-hundred-year event will happen every couple of days at high tide. Wow. Now, my understanding of this is that when you nudge a system, a stable system, so we, I understand, have been in the Holocene for about 10,000 years, which has been a remarkably stable period of geologic history and has enabled the rise of humans to our current levels, that if you nudge a system far enough that it can tip into chaos, is that, is that a viable, a likely notion? Yeah. Um, I'm not so much sure about chaos because our systems are already chaotic in, in, a, in a climate sense, so strictly speaking. But um, um, but what people do talk about is tipping points, and, and I tend to avoid tipping points because that gives people an idea that there's a, a hard edge to where we can right. go and where we can't go. Um, but certainly acknowledge that there's feedbacks. So um, an example of feedback is if we increase the temperature, um, it increases the temperature in the Antarctic. So if we can increase the temperature globally, it increases it in, in the Antarctic or the Arctic. Um, in the Arctic, there's uh, lots of carbon stored in the um, tundra systems. If that starts to methane. be released, you get methane, which increases the temperature more. So you get a positive feedback, um, which could push our system up faster and higher than we otherwise would expect. So I think we should talk about feedbacks, both negative feedbacks and positive feedbacks. And, and those are things we do have some understanding of, even if we can't quantify how they'll sort of play out under different futures quite at the moment. But a, a three degree, is three degree well could be a pretty bad oh, well, place, right? Oh, well, I mean, we're already seeing positive feedbacks right now, um, even at one degree. And so, um, so they just get ramped up really significantly by three degrees. Um, but even in a simple sort of uh, geographical translation to give people a bit of a feel, is if the temperature goes up by four degrees, um, what currently is the average temperature in a place like Moree, up near the Queensland-New South Wales border, um, uh, essentially gets translated to Melbourne. So Melbourne's average temperature will be equivalent to what Moree happens. So it's like half the continent um, difference in temperatures. And all the subsequent effects on agriculture and, and people, as you were saying, uh, Liz, as well. Now, a lot of this we know through the models and the, the people, the anti-climate people, like to pick on the models. What, how do the models work? How confident can we be in what the models tell us? Yeah, so, so these are essentially models of the global climate ocean um, 
uh, atmosphere and, and earth systems and uh, and you know they're they're a research tool they're, they're still being developed and um, but nevertheless they're actually providing I think for at least some variables a fair degree of confidence in their ability to um, uh, synthesize or estimate the changes in uh, say temperature uh, out into the future so so particularly things like global temperature regional temperature uh, those models are actually pretty good uh, at predicting on what's going to happen under any given emission scenario uh, but for things like rainfall um, they're not quite as robust and and so you have to look at a combination of uh, understanding the, the system through the models but also understanding the system through statistics so it's our existing databases and how the climate runs now now mark you mentioned the ipcc now you have been heavily involved with the ipcc just can you quickly tell me what that involvement was and is? Yeah, so, so I, I started uh, IPCC um, setting up the greenhouse gas inventories uh, for agriculture um, uh, right across the globe as well as setting those up for Australia. So, so those are the inventories which monitor uh, how, you know, for example, the performance of countries against the Paris Agreement. Um, then I, I worked in uh, all of the three different working groups of the IPCC, the climate science, the impacts and adaptation and the mitigation working groups, and I've been doing that on a, essentially a relatively consistent basis since uh, the early 90s, so 1991. So I actually think I'm, I'm the, the longest serving person on the IPCC anywhere and, uh, and I've, I've done more IPCC reports and activities than anyone else. Now I understand that you have a connection with uh, Al Gore here. Uh, that, that was the Peace Prize in Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. So, so it was granted um, half and half to Al Gore and the IPCC, and it was effectively recognising the uh, efforts of all of the scientists um, who engage in IPCC. So I've got a very, very small slice of a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> That's still pretty cool. That is still very cool, and it's a great pleasure to have you here, uh, Professor Mark Howden on uh, Fuzzy Logic and Dr Liz Allen. We're going to get into the demography in a minute, but I just want to explore this a bit, a bit further. So, did you get to go to Sweden? No, <laughs> unfortunately. No, there was, there was only the, the chair and the secretary, I think, of the IPCC that went and met the king. Oh, uh, mm. ripped off. <laughs> well, we, we're going to send a delegation from Fuzzy Logic now. The IPCC is a deeply politically, or has, has become deeply politically involved because it's affected well, global politics and so on and how world leaders view climate change, what they do, what they don't do with climate, dare I say, especially places like Australia and the United States. Have you found the political interaction? Well, it's, it's sort of interesting is that um, when I first engaged in IPCC, it was very much a scientific activity and, uh, and there were explicit uh, entities um, which were put in place to connect the science with the policy. Um, but as the nature of the um, issue has grown and as it's become much more central to both policy and to economic decision-making, uh, the politics has sort of um, pushed 
into the into the systems much more. So so the um, what used to be the science policy bodies um, are now effectively just completely policy, and uh, and there's a lot more political interest and pressure in relation to the science body, which is the IPCC, and um, and so it's not. Uh, I, I think the, there's a, a strong degree of integrity of the people engaged in the IPCC process. So I don't see it as politicised, but the outputs of the IPCC it's can the be used. Of the IPCC and That's and right. politics. Well, if, if you just lean forward a little bit, I want to undo your your cranial screw cap and look inside your brain. And I have a sample brain here of a politician, and I'm looking inside that brain, and I'm seeing two very different systems of logic. Now, we, we have the intersection of a scientific way of thinking with a political way of thinking. How are you dealing with politicians? And I imagine you do have a few interactions with them. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I'm here and overseas, and uh, and you get completely polar um, differences in perspectives and and particularly overseas in developing countries people don't discuss where the climate change is happening is that that's a, an accepted fact and they're much much more moved on to the solutions and what can we do about it both in terms of reducing emissions and in adapting to the changes they're seeing well it's become ideological hasn't it so how do we deal with that in Australia? Maybe, Liz, you can throw in some thoughts here as well. We've got the scientific thinking versus the, the political thinking, which is about persuasion, about force of arguments. Well, the planet doesn't care about what party you vote for. How do we... How does science... Because the intuition of a scientist is to say, well, look at the data, look at the evidence, prove me wrong, and, I, and it's a very tough way of thinking. How do you, how do you deal with political thinking? Yeah, I, I find this really quite interesting, particularly because this idea of evidence um, and facts and and evidence base and you know um, is totally in question, and um, and experts aren't being relied on in a way that I think they should be, um, and you know this idea that we're in a post-truth environment. Um, you know, fake news. You know, we we, we don't have to look um, uh, too far to kind of to to see the impacts of of these things. This is real. You know, and and this is the climate that these decisions are going to be made in. This political climate. Um, and um, from my perspective, what what we're seeing, you know, call it demography, if you like, that we've got politicians who, um, no matter what side of the fence they're on. Um, uh, and their ideology, they are self-interested in a way that they are out for doing what is popular and what is in their best interest to see them so, re-elected. So if I interrupt you there, a goal for them would be political power? Uh, look, I think, yeah. Maybe that's I mean, a bit cynical, uh, is it? But I, but I think what else drives them? And and certainly when we when we look at public service, um, you know, many politicians get into politics because of that idea of public service. But you've got to start questioning that those values in that um, where where is the evidence? Why are they not leading based on an evidence base? Uh, why are they not making decisions that are connected across portfolios um, so that we, ha we get the best outcome possible? It, there seems to be a lot of infighting and a lot of power broking occurring within parties. So the environment of politics uh, elicits a lot of this behaviour. It's not conducive to yeah. what's best, and yeah. and I think that we we need to um, we need to start 
holding uh, our elected officials to account on that. Well, on one hand, we could say it's their responsibility, and I would say it's their responsibility to inform themselves, to to have or engage with critical thinking. But then on the other side, it's the experts such as yourselves. How do you present this to them in a way Mm. that makes them think that it's real? And we have to be careful here, of course, because expertise isn't just from sitting behind a desk crunching numbers. Mm. Expertise comes through experience, lived experience. And, and um, you know, criticism that I, I have quite, quite a lot, particularly from a demographic point of view, is that the people that are currently leading, um, uh, leading Australia have very little connection to what it's like to, to be on the ground, so to speak, and yeah. to, to be experiencing um, the policies play out. So the people there out. are political staffers, they have law degrees and so on. There's very few... I saw the statistics recently of the number of science-educated politicians, and I think it's... Uh, Mike's giving me the thumbs down. <laughs> Not many. No, no, it's extremely rare in the Australian system. Well, we, we lament the passing of uh, Barry Jones from the, the high office because he was a great advocate for science. Oh, I chose that piece of music because our guest today rode his bicycle. Putting me... <laughs> putting me to shame. I hang my head in shame. I often ride here, but it's about 12 kilometres and I wasn't up early enough. Oh, and the wind was blowing and it was raining and there was firestorms and there was... Anyway, on with the story. Uh, <laughs> I guess she rode his bicycle is uh, Professor Mark Howden. We're talking uh, climate because you're, you're the director of the ANU Climate Institute and Dr Liz Allen, who is a demographer. Now, uh, during that... Uh, previous segment uh, it did seem very doer very gloomy very bad we're talking about all the terrible things that are happening and can happen as the climate changes but uh, we've got to finish on a, on a positive note at least not not one of false optimism perhaps but there is a good side to this there are opportunities from all this as well aren't there mark Absolutely, it's it's very much our choice as to how we respond to circumstances like this, and and, and I'd, I'd approach this um, from the point of view of of national interest, and and I don't think it's in the national interest to ignore the risks associated with climate change um, because we will incur costs that we don't have to incur. Um, it's uh, not, I don't think, in the national interest uh, to um, just focus on those past industries we've had, um, uh, such as the coal industry, uh, at the expense of future industries, uh, you know, such as renewable energy and, and energy technologies of different types. Um, there has to be a mix as we go into a transition, um, but we need to have a clear idea about what the national interest is. And I think the national interest is best served by recognising what's going on, um, by having a debate about what the pros and cons of different courses of action are, and uh, moving on those in a very consistent and a way which has strong integrity um, across the different decision-making bodies and across the different parties. And so... This is actually about um, trying to forge a bipartisan approach to deal with climate change, which is very different from how we're approaching it now. Um, and, and I think this is actually where the Australian public want us to go, is that if you actually look at the surveys, about 75%, three-quarters of Australians, want more action on climate change. Um, about two-thirds of Australians say they actually want a market price on carbon. And 
uh, and when rated in terms of threat, the recent Lowy survey showed that climate change was rated as the third most important threat um, facing Australia. So, um, so this is something Australians want, and they want it actively, and that's why we've got the highest penetration of solar PV on our roofs. Because the economics are changing. There are a lot of opportunities, and we could do better. We like just look at the health impacts of coal burning. Even if you just lift near the power station, the mercury and, and so on that gets pumped into the air. What, what strikes me about all of this is we know the solutions. The, the, the technology isn't that hard. I mean, it's advancing and it, it can advance a bit further. The science is pretty clear. The hard part is the people. Mm. And <laughs> this kind of a, a segue, I guess. Now, the population of Australia increased, I think you were saying, Liz, by 1.6%. And Mark the emissions from Australia were up last year by about one and a half percent one and a half percent so we're still not there yet but what's the role here population Liz so I think um, there are many parallels in terms of the discourse around population um, and the discourses around climate um, most definitely if we look at population and and again if we look just at the, the Australian population, we're at a juncture, you know, we're at a crossroads in, in history. We need to decide now um, what measures we're going to take to ensure that the well-being of future generations is the same, if not better, than previous ones. To give them an opportunity, yes. Now, we, you know, there's... there's much talk about inequality and the facts are that the, the intergenerational inequality is real in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, we have housing uh, policies and tax incentives that see um, young people unable to get into the housing market. We see job security and, and the like, all, all serious um, uh, issues on the forefront of, of Australians' minds. But if we look to the core and the foundation of these things... Who's going to pay for it? It's us, right, um, uh, in, in terms of, of um, income tax. And at the moment, the population outlook is an ageing one in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, it's unprecedented. In fact, our success at living longer um, and, and female um, uh, women's empowerment has meant we're having fewer children, we're living longer, we're not replacing ourselves. Now... You know, you could you could say, well, that's good. You know, this is the course that a population dynamic is going to take, and um, you know, it's it's all for the better. But that means that there are fewer tax uh, income taxpayers um, contributing to this fine, um, finite pool of money that the government has to draw on um, to fund um, uh, efficiencies well, and fund and infrastructure. With infrastructure, for example. So, um, see, Canberra is really struggling to keep up hospital systems and roads and so on. And this is a common criticism. You know, we look around and, and we see pressure points. Population itself highlights policy failures. It highlights things that, um, uh, like funding. Um, population is a slow-moving beast. It's not something that happens, you know, in an instant. We know where this population train is going because we know where it's been and we know the population needs. 
The problem is that there has been a lot of talk um, among uh, political parties, no matter what what colour they are, suggesting um, you know infrastructure. No, no, in terms of their their ideology that um, okay, you know yeah. we need investment and in, certainly we need an urban plan or whatever. We mm. need this here and there. Money doesn't flow. Well, so infrastructure has failed us quite quite significantly, and um, and so the the pressures that we see play out in our cities, um, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, are due to policy failures and and subsequent what, policy What about failures. the environmental aspects? So ah, so this is the so problem. So we've got more people all need to be fed. We were seeing encroachment on productive lands around Sydney, even in Canberra, the near the what's currently the CSIO station one of the few bits of productive land in Canberra is about to be swallowed up by housing so mm. how can we still feed ourselves if, we, if we're going to be and Mark has already talked about the effects of climate change mm. on agriculture productivity how are we going to cope with a rising population and that so here's the thing Australia is just one part of a global community and this is something that often escapes the the population debate if you like and that um, when we're looking at just migration to Australia the idea that um, uh, if we stop if we close the doors so to speak on Australian immigration those people will cease to be in the world mm. they won't they're there Climate change, just as much as population, is a global thing. We must be thinking globally. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, certainly we are an island bound by sea, um, but from a population perspective, if we shut the doors, population will, uh, population will still grow, even with um, the Australian um, uh, rates of growth from natural increase. Will well, still if grow. you're looking globally, uh, Australia is a net food exporter at the moment, right? So if we keep degrading our farming lands and so on and we increase our own population, will there come a point where we need to be a net food importer and from where would we get that food? So I think at the moment, um, we're, as I said, we're at this crossroads. Hard decisions need to be made. We can be living better and smarter with, with minor tweaks of efficiency and, and innovation. We're a smart country. Um, and and I have um, great faith that, um, that 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 science can be used in a way and and technology can be used in a way as it has been in the past to um, to better to better um, uh, climate to to better resource use um, so that we're we're living better and we're living uh, and what we're passing on to our our, our children and and their their um, uh, the subsequent generations after them is of same um, well-being, if not better than ours. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking of that statistic of, was it 1.6% population growth, emissions increased by 1.5. Mark, where, where, how much can we improve our emissions? How much scope is there to make real gains in this, not just in, in emissions but in water and so on? Is it, are we, like, barely touch the surface of these things? Yeah, it's uh, if you, if you sort of break it down, there's there's a, a whole series of different sectors which which contribute greenhouse gas emissions. So a lot of the focus at the moment is on the electricity sector and renewables versus coal, if you want to characterise it like that. Mm. Um, but that's only 35% of the greenhouse gas emission budget for Australia. Um, so 
about one-seventh is agriculture, about one-seventh is transport. Then you've got industrial emissions and waste emissions and uh, what's called fugitive emissions from uh, coal mines and, and gas leaks in gas pipes and things like that. And, uh, and at the moment, uh, the two-thirds of the emissions... Um, which, which is agriculture, transport, etc., are basically being ignored in the policy debate. And, uh, and there's opportunities to reduce those emissions, often cost-effectively, uh, in those sectors, just like there are opportunities to cost-effectively reduce what, emissions what in sort of electricity. What sort of emissions come from the agriculture? So I'm thinking the obvious one would be transport fuels, diesel and so on. Oh, this is just from the... Um, so, so that's dealt as a transport Right. sector component. This is just uh, methane emissions from cows, uh, nitrous oxide emissions from pastures, things like that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about possibly things like the seeding the guts of cows to reduce methane or, or eating less meat? What, what sort of things can we do? I know that's just uh, um, changing the, the emissions um, uh, per cow sort of thing yeah. uh, and or changing the emissions per unit product so you can become more efficient in your system and so your your emissions per litre of milk for example can go down if you if you become more efficient um, but there are also various treatments which are existing ones uh, which can reduce those methane emissions directly and there's a lot of research going on in Australia and elsewhere um, to target specific parts of that so the methane emissions from the guts of animals which comes out through their mouths uh, is one of those components. So it's a big component um, in Australia and it's a big component globally. So roughly a quarter, almost a third of emissions globally are related to agriculture and food. And I guess that also relates to land clearing and soil carbon and so on, is that right? That's right. Now Mark, are you optimistic? Do you you feel that, uh, (laughs) what's our chances? Uh, well, um, chances of what? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me change the question. And you, you mentioned a, an event in your life before the show. The event in your life was a long way before the show, but <laughs> you know what I'm getting at. Yep. Something twigged you to getting into the field of climate research, into science. What was that? Oh, so this, this um, is a... Uh, a big storm like the tail end of a tropical cyclone that came down the New South Wales coast and uh, and it uh, ripped the roof off my family home and uh, and so at that point when you've got effectively your, your home falling you know down around you um, you sort of get a bit sensitized to the impact that climate can have on people and so uh, so I think is one of the key uh, events that that uh, sort of gave me the interest that I have in climate and uh, and the interest in taking it uh, taking it seriously and finding solutions, so understanding the climate and understanding how we can respond to deal with different climate risks. Okay, what I'm thinking was that uh, when the roof ripped off your house, that became personal and you made a personal connection. Now, Rebecca Colvin, who's a friend of Fuzzy Logic and has been helping me with my book, she was talking the other day about why climate is a wicked problem to convey because it's abstract and so on. Have you? How do you go with that? How do you make it so that it's something tangible? Because I was saying before the show that uh, out of the Indian Ocean there was a massive coral bleaching of fence, but everything seemed fine to me. How do I? How do I connect to something like that? Yeah. Well, interestingly, what what the 
what the international studies show is that the most important thing in determining people's attitude towards climate change is actually leadership, political leadership. Um, and ranked two or three is uh, lived experience. So the sorts of things I was just talking about, you know, your house getting trashed or, um, you know, a heat stress or event or something like that. Um, and so, so the thing is that political leadership is really crucial and, and that can pull people into line and, and merge different perspectives and agendas um, that otherwise remain separate. I, I was interviewing people down at a community energy project. They were from Shepparton, I think, and one of them said, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. Mm. So maybe that's a call to action on behalf of our fuzzy logic listeners. Get on the blower, give your politicians a hard time, because they respond, don't they, to the way that, from what they hear in their focus groups, from surveys, from people and so on. Oh, but they do, that's their job. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, but as I said before, there is a gap between uh, the perspectives of the average Australian, you know, three quarters wanting action on climate change, um, and the political discourse. I think one way of, of um, merging that or bridging that gap is it's about providing better opportunities. It's about providing better alternatives to the ones that we currently have. So, so when you actually respond to these issues, you're not worse off, you're actually better off. And that can be at a personal level or it can be at a national level. That's and a really good. I think maybe that's, we should encapsulate that for our, our show today on Fuzzy Logic. We've talked about some of the very bleak, very dark sides of this problem, but what you're saying is it's an opportunity and we can do better. Australia can become an energy powerhouse, pardon the pun. We can show global leadership, can't we? Do you agree, Liz? Yeah. Mm. We're almost at an end. Liz, do you want to just chuck in a quick thought before we wind up? Yeah, I will. I think um, while the, the topics we've been discussing today are quite big ones, they are very real and visual in, in, I guess, the minds of most Australians. And I think that um, what we need now is, as, as Mark has suggested, is, is um, a conversation about what we want to be. That, Should we have a population policy? Uh, oh, look, I think we should. About, and uh, climate should feature in that. We've got one minute left of fuzzy logic, so yep. we don't have a population policy. We don't. We don't. And that's deliberate. We don't want fixed goals. What we want in a population policy is a responsive um, and prepared approach to our future. And with, with the idea of sustainability in mind, what we're passing to our children is the same, if not better, than what we've experienced ourselves. And with that in mind, we need to reconnect the disjointed portfolios that sit across government, health, education, housing, transport, infrastructure, climate, all of these things together so that we can then have a real and earnest wouldn't it, conversation. Wouldn't it be good if there was a, a national debate, a national conversation, or if you want to use that word, about what Australia's immigration intake should be, what our natural growth should be? Wouldn't it be good if we actually talked about this? Because it's pretty... I, I think we need to talk about it's it. It's pretty fundamental. I'm not, I'm not a fan of a plebiscite, though. <laughs> Oh, plebiscites? No, no, no not, not on this one. We don't need plebiscites. Because definitely need a conversation. Uh, and leadership, as you were saying, Mark. Well, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you both. Just a quick heads up before I say my final goodbye. We have a companion column in the Fairfax Media, which runs uh, in today's print edition of the Canberra Times, and Fairfax Online gets picked up by the Sydney Morning Herald. I had a listener ask me about why is the speed of light limited? 
is it limited? <laughs> and I had a lot of fun answering that question. And, uh, well, you'll have to read it yourself. We'll have a link on our Fuzzy Logic Twitter. Professor Mark Howden, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Rod. And Liz Allen, uh, great pleasure to talk to you also. We're going to go. Thank you. Oh, it's too many big topics, too many big <laughs> topics. There's plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, catch you later.